Good morning. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church this morning. And um, welcome to those of you who are here for the first time, if you're visiting. Um, it's really great that you've been able to come out, and I hope you, you get to know us and yeah, enjoy your time with us here this morning. And for those of us who have been here week on week, it's, it's great to be able to come back together again and to, to join together as, as a family and to, to worship God together. Um, I don't know what your week has been like. I don't know if you've had one of those weeks where, where everything just seemed to go wrong, or perhaps you've had a week where actually, you know, things worked out pretty well. Either way, all of us are dependent people. We need so many things. And, you know, we, we can think that we're, we're, we're self-reliant and we're independent and we are, we're strong in ourselves, but... Um, but not even the breath in our lungs is there because we've put it there. You know, the, the life that we have is, is given to us by God. And we, we come this morning to, to express our need. We come to express our need of God. And we come to express our confidence that, that He, that God supplies our every need. That He is, in fact, what we need. And so we come this morning to, to worship Him, to express our need of Him. Uh, to give our thanks to him. And we do that as we read his word, the Bible, together. We do it as we pray and as we sing. And as Duncan later on comes to preach God's word to us, we express our need of him and we express our confidence that he supplies our need. So let me um, read a psalm that, that does that very thing. Psalm 23. It's a very well-known psalm. Um, and it expresses the psalmist's confidence in the care of God, in all circumstances. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So the reading is John chapter 6, and it's verses 1 to 21. And I'll give you a moment to find that, and you'll be pleased to know that I will enforce no actions during this. So Jesus feeds the 5,000. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, eight months wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, 
but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Thanks be to God. Let me add to Mark's welcome. There we are. Thank you so much for joining with us today. And uh, it's nice to be back and nice to be turning again to John's gospel. And just as we come to these verses of scripture, I want to just remind you why John's gospel was written. Okay, just so that we make sure that we, we read it with the right lenses in. You come to the end of John's gospel, and here's, here's how he almost wraps things up. He says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so over the summer, uh, when I've been preaching, we've, we've been looking at some of these signs in John's gospel, these signs that John, by the Holy Spirit, had particularly selected to include in his gospel. And it's as if, as we read this book of the Bible, John wants us to keep asking a particular question of Jesus. And it is, what kind of a person would do that? What kind of a person would do that? You see, for John, these are not just interesting stories. This is a matter of life and death, a matter of eternal life and eternal death. And so, over the few weeks we've done this, we've asked, who turns water into wine? Who speaks with words of power? And today we come to another two signs here. And the first of those signs is the only one of Jesus' sign miracles that appears in all four Gospels. And we're asking the question, who feeds the hungry? Words that we almost never want to hear someone say to us are, 
There's nothing more we can do. That could be if you're haggling on the price for something. That could be looking at treatment options for an illness. That could be when the guy comes to repair your boiler. We never want to hear those words, do we? There's nothing more we can do. We can't get the parts. We've no more treatment options to try. But this is part of what it is to be human, isn't it? We regularly have to say, I'm sorry, I don't have the resources to fix that, to buy this, to control that. Life is lived within limitations. And I think this is what stands out to me so clearly in this fourth sign in John's gospel. We see so clearly that human resources are limited, but Jesus' resources are not. Human resources are limited, but Jesus' resources are not. The start of chapter uh, six of John's gospel, he says, after this, which is really John's way of keeping the story going. In chapter five, we saw that Jesus was in the city of Jerusalem. He healed a paralyzed man. Um, He'd been paralyzed for 38 years. Um, And as wonderful a miracle as that was, it ended with a dispute because the religious leaders were miffed that Jesus had done this healing work on the Sabbath, the Jewish day of rest. And it led into Jesus' teaching about what his relationship to his heavenly Father is like. And he emphasizes there is a oneness, an unbreakable unity. The things that Jesus does are the things that the Father does. And John told us then that the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus because of this. Because in calling God his Father, he was making himself equal with God. And so John quickly moves us on here in chapter 6. After this, that's the after this. After all of that, Jesus moves location. We find him way out of Jerusalem now. He's headed north and east across the Sea of Galilee, and he's on the northeastern side of that sea. And we see here that, that Jesus draws a more positive response in the Galilean countryside than in the city of Jerusalem but he draws a more dangerous response, which we'll see as we go. The scene here is that Jesus intends to have some time alone with his disciples. You see, he goes up on the mountainside, the hillside, with his disciples, but the large crowd have seen him and how he heals the sick, and so they're not going to let Jesus get away from them. And so the picture is like this. It's as if they see Jesus and the disciples heading off in the boat onto the Sea of Galilee, and they try and pinpoint what part of the shore they're heading for on the other side. And once they've got it, they say, right, well, let's just run around and meet them. And that's what they do. And so no sooner has Jesus sat down with his disciples than he hears this rumble of feet and voices getting closer and closer. And there they are, a crowd, a large crowd making their way towards him. But it scuppers the plans, but it provides an opportunity, an opportunity for Jesus to teach his disciples, to again reveal something to them about who he is and to us as well as we read. So Jesus, he sees the crowd coming and he asks Philip, 
And we learn from elsewhere that Philip is from that neck of the woods. So this is the guy to ask. Jesus says, where, this is verse 5, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And I suppose behind that question is really to ask, how has Philip's time with Jesus affected his approach to this kind of problem solving? I mean, John is clear. Jesus didn't ask the question because he was naive or because he needed some advice. He already knew what he was going to do. But in response, there's only one thing that Philip can see. All he can see are his limitations. And who can blame him, right? This was a large crowd. Twice John uses that phrase. And then when Andrew chips into the discussion, all he can see is that there are so many people. And he's right, it was a crowd of 5,000 men. And that's not telling us how many women and children were there. So maybe think of it in these terms, 5,000 families. I mean, some of us get into a blind panic when a couple of friends turn up at around mealtime, all right? And you think, what on earth are we going to feed them? There's nothing in the freezer, there's nothing in the fridge. Never mind 5,000 families turning up and you say to the person next to you, right, where can we get something to feed them? The problem, the scale of the problem is just overwhelming here. Add into that the location. Jesus has taken them out into the middle of nowhere. Food is not at hand. And even if there was a market nearby, how much would it cost to feed 5,000 families? Uh, the literal language is, they speak about a denarius. So a denarius was a day's wage. And if you have the ESV, which I'm using, um, Philip says, even if we had 200 denarii, which is about eight months' wages, what would that achieve? I mean, Philip is right, isn't he? He says, even if we had eight months' wages in our hands right now, that would barely buy enough to give each person a morsel. And there's something laughable, isn't there? I wonder if there was some comedy in Andrew's mind when he says, well, here's this wee boy. He's got, he's got five wee loaves and two wee fish. This wee boy's lunch, five barley loaves, small baps. Barley loaves were the cheapest of bread. It did not melt in your mouth. And he's got two fish, maybe dried fish or pickled fish. I mean, can you imagine? Andrew sees the scale of the need. Andrew sees the scarcity of their resources. And he does the sum and he concludes, what are they for so many? Verse 9, but what are they for so many? But he's got the wrong answer. He's done the sums, but he's got the wrong answer. These men have walked with Jesus for some time now, more than a year certainly, and they've seen surely that the normal rules of arithmetic don't apply to Jesus in these sort of situations. This small laughable lunch is an abundance in Jesus' hands because his resources are not limited. And so Jesus gets the huge crowd seated into some kind of order 
You see they're to sit down on the green grass there. They're um, led into green pastures like we were reading of in Psalm 23 earlier uh, so that the meal can be distributed to them. Jesus gives thanks to the Father for the bread and the fish and they're shared out. And it says in verse 11 that the people ate as much as they wanted. Verse 12, they ate their fill. Jesus is able to feed a multitude in the wilderness from virtually nothing. And the topsy-turvy arithmetic that follows Jesus is seen in the collection at the end. He insists on all the leftovers being collected. Each disciple has a basket. And so at the end, you have 12 baskets filled with leftovers. So by the end of this miracle, the leftovers are more than what he started with. You see, Jesus' resources are unlimited. And so we do what we're supposed to do in John's gospel. Who does a thing like that? Who does something like that? Well, you see, when we understand who Jesus is, this kind of miraculous sign is not so surprising. John would tell us at the very start of his gospel that Jesus is the eternal word. He is God from the beginning who is the creator of everything. Creating something out of nothing is what makes God, God. And here Jesus displays that in his multiplying the boy's humble lunch into a banquet for many, many thousands. And here's the thing, you can't hide a miracle like that. You can't hide it. 5,000 families having an all-you-can-eat lunch in the middle of nowhere with no notice, didn't even make a reservation. You can't hide a miracle like that they will notice that something strange has happened. I mentioned that back in Jerusalem, Jesus was met with suspicion, with hatred. Well, out here in the sticks, so to speak, the reception he gets is very different. Look at verse 14 with me. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. What are they talking about? Back in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, we read of Moses delivering a promise to the people of Israel, a promise that the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Well, these people, they see what Jesus has done and they simply conclude, well, that promised prophet has come. The Savior, like Moses, who will come and rescue his people, this must be him, because who else could feed such a crowd in the wilderness? And surely this is a good thing that they recognize who he is. After all, this is why Jesus did these signs, isn't it? So that people would recognize him. And you see, this crowd gets it. But we see here that it's one thing to see who Jesus is, and it is quite another thing to understand why Jesus came. The crowd are on a different wavelength from Jesus altogether, because they want to see him crowned as king. Instead, Jesus, what does he do? He withdraws. He goes back up the hillside on his own. 
What we're seeing here is that Jesus is a Savior on His terms, not mine. Jesus is a Savior on His terms, not mine. John told us that it was nearly time for the Passover feast, a season of real national pride for Israelites. This was the reminder of the time when God rescued them from slavery in Egypt so that He might take them to the promised land and make them into a great nation. And with that kind of patriotic sentiment in the air, the 5,000 men, and so you begin to wonder, does John describe the crowd like that to make them sound like an army of some kind? 5,000 men are ready to march on Herod's royal palace and install Jesus as their king? And why not? Why not do that? Elected leaders today have had to learn the art of giving the people what they want, or at least what they think they want. Uh, Right now, we have two people vying to be prime minister, and to do that, they're going to have to win a popular vote. So they set out their stall, and we've seen this multiple times already. When one of them realizes that what they've proposed is not popular, then up comes the handbrake, round goes the steering wheel, the sharpest U-turn you've ever seen. Well, if that's not popular, we don't, we don't have to do that. Why don't you just tell me the kind of prime minister you'd like me to be, and I'll be that? Now, that sort of approach might win a vote, but it is never, ever how Jesus operates. He has not come to win a popularity contest. He has not come simply to feed what we think are our deepest, most precious appetites. No, Jesus can see exactly where this is going. You see that in verse 15. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Now he withdraws back up the mountain all alone. In his dispute with the Jews in Jerusalem, he told them, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is working to an agenda, and it is not an agenda set by you or me. It's set by God. In the verses that follow our reading, we actually have Jesus explaining the full significance of this miracle of feeding 5,000. I'm going to give you a flavor of what he says. We're told the next day the crowds, they see that Jesus is gone, but they know that he didn't get in the boat with the disciples. So they want to find out where has he gone. Let's go and find him. And when they find him round the other side of the sea, they ask, how did you get here? And here's some of Jesus' answer. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. 
For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. You see, the thrust of what Jesus is saying is that the crowd loved him because he fed them. He'd given them what they thought they most needed. And if you find a king who can do that, well, what else do you need? But Jesus says this is far too short-term an understanding of life. They are concerned with food that would, that would perish within a few days when they need the food that can give eternal life. They are excited about what they might get from Jesus. And Jesus says, you are so hung up on the bread that you can't see that it is supposed to point you to the true bread that comes from heaven, that gives life to the world. He wants to reveal himself through this sign that he is the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, he says, shall not hunger. You see, Jesus wants people to be drawn to him more than being drawn to the things they can get from him. It's not in receiving the perks of knowing Jesus that we find eternal life. It is in knowing him. And so the desire of the crowd to crown Jesus as king is repulsive to him because it is a plan to exalt him without him going to the cross. It shows a failure to appreciate how deep the human problem is. We don't just need better leaders. We don't just need better laws. We don't just need a better education system. We ourselves need to be changed. I need to be changed. And people today are drawn to Jesus for all sorts of reasons. Some are attracted to the sense of community that a church could bring. Some think that if they follow Jesus and pray to him, that he will give them the things that they really, really want. A husband or a wife, good health, a steady job, healthy finances, and pretty much generally no big problems. And when it doesn't work out like that, then they give up on the whole thing. Because you see, this is what it means to want Jesus to be a savior on my terms. I'll trust him if he gives me, if he gives me. He's not interested in that. And neither should we be interested in that. Because Jesus has come to do so much more. To actually deal with the true deepest problem that humanity has. The problem we have is that we are not living, we are dying. The Bible would use the language, we're perishing. And we're perishing because of sin. We have rebelled against God. We live for ourselves. We're so committed to feeding our selfish appetites and desires that what God might want or what God might care about, that is way down the list. And frankly, he often seems to be in the way of me fulfilling what I want to be. 
And it's this approach to life that is disastrous for us. This is not what life is for. This is not the life God made us to have. And it puts us under God's judgment. And it means we are heading for death. Physical death. Spiritual death. But John writes his gospel because he has a message to give us that Jesus has come to be our Savior. And simply sitting him on a throne, on King David's throne in Jerusalem, isn't going to change the fundamental problem that we have. No, our sin must be dealt with. And so Jesus will take up another throne before he takes up the greatest throne of all. He'll be enthroned on a cross. There he suffered and died in the place of sinners. He then rose again from the dead, defeating sin and death forever, so that all who come to him, all who believe in him, all who receive him, the bread of life, will find that he really is the food that gives eternal life. Longing for a savior who doesn't need to die on a cross, is to miss what we really need in order to be right with God. It is to miss Jesus. He hasn't come to be that kind of savior. So I cannot stand here today and offer you any kind of ticket to an easy life, to financial security, to good health for the rest of your life. That is not in my authority to give or promise I can offer you something greater by far. I can offer you Jesus Christ. The one whose resources are unlimited. Who is able to transform a rebellious sinner like you or me into a child of God. The call that comes to us from John's gospel is the call I will give to you. Turn from sin. Believe in Jesus. Follow him. Find life. But as we close, I want to look at the second sign that Laura read from us in John 6, the fifth sign in John's gospel, where he goes walking out on the water to his disciples. And overwhelmingly, I I see something of Jesus' compassion here for his disciples. And I say that just I mean, just imagine the disciples' mindset as they're out on the sea. You know, the thing that the crowd wanted, those 5,000 men, the thing that that crowd wanted was the same thing Jesus' disciples wanted. Having seen that Jesus is the Messiah, they want him to take the throne of Israel, to overthrow the Roman authorities and to restore Israel to full national pride. And so how discouraged must they have been to see Jesus turn down the opportunity to march at the the front of 5,000 willing men to take his rightful place. Instead, Jesus had withdrawn and the disciples had had to leave without him. He remained on the mountain all alone and they headed back out to sea. And then to add misery upon misery. As evening fell, a storm rose up. The sea became choppy. The wind started to blow. It was dark. And they didn't have Jesus with them. That's how John describes it in verses 18 and 19. 
For the feeding of the 5,000, there were many thousands of people present to witness and to experience what Jesus did. This sign that we come to from verse 16 to 21 was for the benefit of 12 men only. Discouraged men who were wondering if they'd got Jesus right at all. And so how wonderfully compassionate of the Lord Jesus to walk out to them atop the Sea of Galilee, to come to them in their struggle on the sea and to say to them, it is I, do not be afraid. We see here that Jesus reveals himself to his people. Jesus reveals himself to his people. When they stood in the wilderness faced with the problem of how to feed 5,000 families, all they could see was the scale of the problem. The problem looked big. Everything else, including Jesus, seemed small. Here on the sea, it's completely reversed. I mean, we expect to read that they're terrified of the dark, the wind, the waves. But no, in this miraculous sign, the disciples' view is dominated by Jesus himself. Initially, it is him that they're terrified of. You see that in verse 19? They see him walking on the water and they're terrified. One reassuring word from him and they were glad to receive him into the boat. And in that moment, they arrive at their destination. Neither time nor space, not even gravity, can restrict the power of God in Christ. And how confirming this must have been for these men to see that whatever Jesus is doing, whether they fully understand it yet or not, he really is who he says he is. He's the Son of God so they can trust him. They are able to repeat the words of Psalm 93. The floods have lifted up, Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. They see in this miracle, this is who Jesus is, the one who is mightier than the waves of the sea. If you belong to Jesus Christ today, then he has made certain commitments to you. We've been singing about some of them today. Unto the grave, what will we sing? Christ he lives, Christ he lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. And we will rise to meet the Lord then sin and death will be destroyed and we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. Though I walk the darkest path, I will not fear the evil one for you are with me. Those he saves are his delight, precious in his holy sight. He'll not let my soul be lost his promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. And these sorts of great assurances come to us 
From whom? From the one whose resources are not limited. And so when we are shaken, when we are discouraged, when we are doubting, then we need a passage of Scripture like this one in John 6 we'll be thinking about today, where Jesus comes to his followers. He walks out on the water to where we are in our fear and darkness, and he is able to say to us, it is I. Do not be afraid. This passage of Scripture is here to get us to look at Jesus And Bankery Christian Fellowship Church, let's look again to Jesus. He has promised to build his church. His resources are unlimited. And we might not have chosen that turn that life has taken, the turn that the spiritual temperature in Scotland has taken. But Jesus comes to us today from this page of John's Gospel And he wants our view of life, our view of ourselves to be more dominated by his unlimitedly resourceful presence than by the problems and difficulties around us. That doesn't take them away, but it enables us to trust him. Even when we're doubting, we're not sure where we're heading, that actually the one whose unlimited resources is the one who's promised to see us through, to be with us. And only Jesus can do that because only Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing in him, we have life in his name. I pray that that hope of eternal life is yours today. And if not, it can be. The call still goes out to receive Jesus, find life. If anyone wants to speak about any of these things, uh, I'll be after the service down in this corner, be happy to speak to you.